Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 17th on a hot Northern California morning. I hope you're all well. Could, of course, use this show to talk about global warming, how the world's coming to an end. We could complain about technology. We could worry about Trump. We could write off Joseph Biden. We could be as miserable as we normally are in these shows. But perhaps we need to cheer up a little bit. Perhaps we can focus on something a little bit more encouraging than Donald Trump or global warning, uh, not warming, warning, warming. Or, uh, or, or Mark Zuckerberg at uh, Facebook. Uh, one piece caught my eye uh, this week, a piece about a very interesting new technology. I don't even know if it's called a new technology, uh, a, a way of doing technology, a way of doing computing called quantum computing and quantum computers. Uh, it was in Wired, which is always on the, the cutting edge of, of new technologies, new ideas. Uh, and written by my guest today, Amit Katwala. Uh, Amit is the author, alongside the Wired piece, of a new book put out by Wired called Quantum Computing, How It Works and Why It Could Change the World. Um, Amit, you need to cheer us up. How is, <laughs> how's, how's quantum going to save us all from global warming, from Donald Trump? from Google and perhaps Facebook, although, of course, uh, quantum is indeed being pioneered by, by Google and IBM, so maybe it won't be quite as good news as we suggest. What is quantum? It's a very hard concept to grasp, isn't it? It is a very difficult concept to grasp, and you can there are levels to it, and you can go really, really in-depth, which requires some knowledge of quantum physics, we can do quite a high level explanation, which is what I'm going to attempt to do here. But essentially, quantum computing is a new type of computing that takes advantage of the quantum properties of quantum mechanics to enable computers to do things that they can't currently do. So a quantum computer can do things that even the world's best supercomputer can't do because it doesn't have enough power. So for certain types of problem, quantum computers could be exponentially faster than traditional supercomputers. Um, and they do this by taking advantage of uncertainty and the uncertainty that's built into quantum mechanics. And instead of using that as a disadvantage, they use it as a strength. It's more than just going from a, um, a Prius to a Tesla, though, isn't it? This is more than just a bump in speed in power. It's, it's a different way of doing computing. And it's a different way, indeed, of thinking about technology and replicating nature in your Wired piece, you say that quantum can save the lithium-ion battery, which is, of course, the, the core of, of, of not only our iPhones, but our Tesla cars and much of the promise of rechargeable technology. Uh, Amit, again, I know this is, a, this is hard stuff for a, non, a non-technical audience to understand, but how can quantum, and, and you write about this in lots of different ways, how is it in the business of replicating nature and what exactly does that mean and what is the result of it so when you get down to a really really small scale the universe stops behaving in the way that we think it behaves at a larger scale so 
you'll be familiar with the concept of Newtonian physics, right? The idea that objects bounce off each other like snooker balls, like pool balls. And that if you... Yeah, motion. The world works according to laws of motion. That was the exactly. Newtonian foundation of modernity, right? Exactly. But when you go down to a small scale, those rules stop applying. And that means that it's really, really hard to simulate chemical reactions that happen at that small scale because these molecules are really complex. And when they're interacting with each other, you need to be able to model the quantum nature of the molecules at the tiny scale if you want to accurately model the whole thing. So quantum computers offer a way to do that. So how that applies to batteries, for instance, is that while we're looking for new materials that could replace lithium and lithium ion batteries, because lithium is difficult to extract in it, there's an environmental cost to extracting it. Um, quantum computers could, by accurately simulating lots and lots of different types of molecule without the need to synthesize them, could accelerate that search for an alternative to lithium in energy storage. It could accelerate the search for different drugs for certain, certain things without actually having to physically model and test all these things. You can simulate the behavior more accurately if you have a quantum computer. So what we're talking about is a revolution in, in, in simulation. You say in your book that we've always known the laws of chemistry, or we've known the laws of chemistry since the 1930s. We simply haven't had the computing muscle to simulate it. The same is true of, of traffic patterns, of of the body in terms of figuring out um, uh, cures for cancer. So the revolutionary quality of quantum is in its ability to simulate our bodies, our world, our universe. Is that fair? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair assessment. That's right. So it's certain types of problem get exponentially more difficult as they scale up, right? So a molecule with three orbiting electrons is you can simulate it on a normal computer, but when you get up to 70 or 80, you'd need trillions of computers, you know, more chips than have ever been built in the entire human history or ever will be built to do the calculations because there's so many permutations and they're all entangled with each other. And so it just grows exponentially. Um, and that's because of the uncertainty of quantum mechanics at that really, really small scale. You know, uh, the uncertainty principle and Schrodinger's cat and all these things that basically say you can't know for certain whether a molecule is in a particular state or another state because if you measure it it knocks it out of that state so quantum computers can kind of bypass that problem and yet as you say tap into the uncertainty that's inherent to nature and because they have a they can because they have a way of simulating uncertainty built into them they can tap into that uncertainty of nature more easily so the thing i i'm intrigued with in quantum and this is a dumb thing to say, so you can correct me, is as a non-tech person who's always been rather suspicious of technology, particularly because I don't understand it, um, I'm intrigued with quantum because it, it seems to suggest a kind of irrationality. Is it is it fair to say, and I've talked to other quantum experts on this, that you never know, you you never quite know the result of quantum. It's, if not arbitrary, certainly unexpected. So it's very different from the kind of way in which we traditionally think about science and math. It's it's probabilistic, is what I would say. So rather than certain. So you know, if you think about a normal computer, it's made of bits, right? So zeros and ones that can either be zero or one or nothing in between. A quantum computer is made of qubits, which can be zero or one or somewhere in between, some uncertain point in between. The analogy that I like to use is of a coin. If you flip a coin, it can either be heads or tails. But if you take that coin and you spin it like you would spin a spinning top, it's 
either heads or tails, it's somewhere in between, and you don't know what it is going to be until you stop it and measure it. And that's what a qubit is, and that's what a quantum computer is. Essentially, it's thousands or millions of these kind of spinning coins in different states of uncertainty. Is it as if Picasso, if Picasso chose to build technology or make a computer, he would use quantum? Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of uh, that sense of seeing something, but also not seeing it, right? It's there, but it's not there. And yeah, I think that's a good analogy, because if you look at his art, there are shapes there that you think you can see, but you can't really be 100% sure whether that's what he actually intended. And yeah, well, no doubt when that. Apple come out with the first quantum computer, they'll call it the Picasso. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Amit, your book starts with um, uh, an observation about Summit, the IBM supercomputer, which is supposed to be the most powerful computer in the world. Um, uh, in twenty in June twenty nineteen, it was crowned as you as I said the the, the world's fastest computer. Um, it weighs three times more than a blue whale and fills the space of two tennis courts. You say, and then everything changes because um, you say at the same time it claimed this prize, um, uh, a, a quantum computer. Was 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 outdoing this, and and it all came out of a small private, and I'm quoting you here, a small private research lab near the beach in Santa Barbara, California. What was happening on the beach of Santa Barbara, uh, Amit? That um, that that has made once again IBM a footnote to history. IBM <laughs> always comes second, don't they? The only purpose of IBM is to lose. <laughs> so that is where um, Santa Barbara, that's where Google have their quantum research lab. And Google has built a number of quantum computers. Uh, they These tiny chips, and they sit in these distillation fridges that hang down from the ceiling like chandeliers. And if you Here's go to the lab, it's... It. Here is a picture. Yeah, that's exactly it. Cryostat. It looks as if it's come straight out of Star Trek or Star Wars or some other science fictional uh, show. Yeah, so if you right at the very, very bottom of that photo, you can just about see it. There's a tiny chip that's about the size of my thumbnail, and that's the quantum computer where all the qubits are. And all that other stuff is just cooling and wiring to keep that chip cooled down to a temperature that's colder than outer space. Because the problem with quantum computers is that qubits are really, really sensitive to noise and to heat. So you have to keep them incredibly well isolated from their environment. Because if you think about that analogy of the spinning coin, you know, the slightest breeze could knock that coin out of that state of spinning, which the quantum analogy for that is called superposition. So it can either be zero or one or in a state of superposition where it's kind of both zero and one at the same time. But anything can knock it out of superposition. Anything can topple that spinning coin over. So you have to keep it incredibly well isolated from heat, from noise, from electrical interference. And that's what all that infrastructure that you saw in the photo there was about. It's all about isolating that chip and keeping it as cold as possible. So it's kind of... Uh... Uh, 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 a more powerful version of the vaccine, right? You say that, um, and, and, and you write about it in the book, uh, Google's quantum lab just north of Santa Barbara, you call it a squat beige building around the corner from a beer distributor. Um, and then you write, it doesn't look like the home of the next big breakthrough in technology, but you could probably have said the same thing about Bletchley Park in the 1940s. Bletchley Park, of course, is where Alan Turing and his team um, did some of the most uh, revolutionary work in AI. How does quantum fit in to AI? Is it another step? Is it part of the AI revolution or is it something entirely different? 
I think they're complementary technologies. They're not necessarily linked, but quantum could be used in conjunction with AI. It could help make AI more, AI more powerful by supercharging the underlying equipment that it runs on and giving it more kind of computing resource to work with. I think we'll see some really interesting things being done by combining quantum and AI. So when it comes to, say, drug drug discovery and discovering new molecules, quantum computing in combination with AI could use something called generative modeling to rapidly create different molecules or potential molecules. And then you can use the quantum computer to simulate them. And then you could narrow that down to the ones that you actually want to simulate in real life or synthesize in real life. So I think there's definitely complementary technologies. And I think we'll, what will probably happen is that you won't, if you're, a, if you're a big company with a problem that you want to solve, say you're a pharmaceutical company and you want to create a new drug for some problem, you won't you won't say, oh, I'll go and try this on a quantum computer or I'll go and try this on a uh, supercomputer using AI. You'll approach a company like Google or IBM or Amazon with, here is my problem. And then they will run it on whatever hardware is most appropriate for that problem, whether it's quantum, whether it's a traditional supercomputer, whether it's machine learning or AI, they'll use a combination of different tools to kind of tackle these big world changing problems. You uh, you quote someone, uh, I think actually uh, Discover Magazine, uh, you were describing quantum as less a, a machine than a force of nature. Um, and of course, forces of nature are unleashed on us, Amit. If indeed quantum becomes a kind of platform that only a handful of uh, trillion dollar companies like Google and Amazon and perhaps IBM can afford and operate, isn't that really terrifying? I mean, Google is not exactly flavor of the month uh, out here in California, and I'm sure it's not in, in the UK. Um, isn't this worrying? I mean, the Google people talk a good game and their their marketing people are very skilled, but they haven't exactly done a good job with Web 2.0. And they're one of the companies that I think are most responsible for many of the problems associated with technology in 2021. Yeah, I think... Quantum is much less likely to have an impact on our on our day-to-day -day lives in the same way as the internet has, just because most people will never interact with a quantum computer or never never come close to interacting with a quantum computer themselves. If you think about something like Summit, the supercomputer, right? These supercomputers are often research labs, and the only people that really interact with them are scientists and researchers that are using that quantum computing time to or that supercomputing time to do experiments. And quantum computers will be the same. So the way that the average person will interact with them is when their phone comes out in five or 10 years time and it's got a much, much bigger battery life or, you know, their car, electric car's got a new type of battery technology or there's a new uh, fertilizer that makes crops grow faster, but without the environmental issues that are caused by current kind of nitrogen-based fertilizers. So I'm hopeful that the scientific benefits of this technology will outweigh any drawbacks and it's not obvious to me what the negative side of things would be although you know it's very very difficult to predict and i, and I think if you asked you know alan turing if there was going to be a, a downside to ai or, or whatever i don't think or even tim berners lee i, don't well, think, I think they knew i think they were warning about it i mean even mm. marvin minsky was warning about the the dangers of ai i think turing knew, understood it better than anyone didn't he Mm. Maybe the AI is a bad example. So maybe maybe Tim Berners-Lee in the web, you know, I think this this kind of promise of of connectivity, and we didn't maybe necessarily consider what some of the downsides might have been back then. 
Uh, the Google, as, as you say in the book, um, the Google people, or at least their PR people, compare the achievement, the achievement being the one in Santa Barbara, to the first flight by the, the, bright, by the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. So it's as if uh, Google was teaching us to fly again. There's been a lot of hype about quantum. Um, your book makes an attempt to distinguish the hype from re the reality. Where are we with quantum? It's real, Amit, right? But it's not it's not quite ready yet. Is that fair? Yeah, we're a long way from being able to uh, to use the, the flight analogy, a long way from being able to fly across the Atlantic. I think Kitty Hawk is a great example because it proves that it can be done, but there's still a lot of work that needs to happen for it to actually become a reality. There are massive engineering hurdles, technical hurdles, software hurdles, uh, skills hurdles that need to be overcome before quantum computers become a useful part of our lives right now it's just like a proof of concept is google have proven that you can build a quantum computer and it can outperform a supercomputer in certain very very tight scenarios but what they need to do now is scale it up because right now the quantum computer they've built isn't actually that useful for challenges that we face it can't really do anything useful that a supercomputer can't do already so you know, the challenge is how do you scale that technology up? And if you if you think about that fridge, right, so that fridge supports a system of about 70 qubits, which are the bits I'm talking about. But we'll need, you know, thousands or millions of qubits to um, to scale up. So that 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 cryostat is about the size of a man. It's probably about maybe like five and a half, six foot tall and maybe about two or three feet wide. Um, so if you think about scaling that up by a factor of, you know, a thousand, how big is that going to be? It's going to be the size of a football stadium, um, which isn't very practical. Um, and the more you scale up, the noisier it gets. So the more systems you have to put in place to counteract the noise. So we're going to need some very, very serious engineering and technological breakthroughs to actually make quantum a reality. So, you know, we're at, and, you know, you mentioned that I talked about Bletchley Park and Alan Turing. And, you know, if you think back to that, that, that era of computing, when it was all kind of room-sized machines with vacuum tubes, that's where we're at, right? We're not even at the era of like, you know, Microsoft or IBM in the 80s and 90s. We're, we're in the 50s or 60s. Where's the heart of it? I mean, you, um, you spend some time uh, describing California, Santa Barbara, as well as the IBM facility in San Jose in California. But you also mentioned that the Chinese are investing, and I use that word carefully, the Chinese are investing... Uh, large amounts of resources and capital in, in quantum. Is this the next techno arms race between the US and China? Is Europe it involved could, in any way? Yeah, there's there's a lot of different investment arms. So uh, the US's involvement has mainly been through private companies. So Google and Amazon, IBM are all heavily involved. I think there is some defense funding as well or some government funding kind of behind that, especially on the research side. In China, as you say, it tends to be more state-backed, but they focus more not on quantum computing, but more on kind of quantum communications, which could provide essentially untraceable, uncrackable communications links. So they've done a lot of work on quantum satellite communication. Uh, in Europe, there's also a lot of investment from the EU, and in the UK in particular, there's a really, really strong kind of quantum ecosystem looking at building up some of the support systems that these quantum computers will need. So there are companies kind of working on problems like okay, well, what do the chips look like? How do you manufacture them at scale? Or what does the software package that sits around these quantum computers look like? So there's a really strong and healthy ecosystem in lots of different countries. But I would say the US dominates on the hardware side. China's dominating on the communications side. 
and maybe Europe is leading on sort of the infrastructure around it. Marv, uh, AI, of course, had Marvin Minsky and Alan Turing. Is there a particular scientist, a, a, a TED-style star who is pioneering the idea of quantum? As a Greek woman at Caltech, and I'm embarrassed, I can't remember her name. I did interview her, and she's uh, very charismatic and articulate. But it, it doesn't seem as if quantum is associated with a single scientist at the moment. Is that, is that, I mean, who invented quantum? Is it Einstein, basically? <laughs> So the the idea of quantum computing, you can essentially trace it back to Richard Feynman. Right. Um, so he was one of the first people to realize that if you wanted to simulate the quantum properties of the un the universe, you would need a quantum system to do it. Um, so that kind of started this this idea. And then there was great work that was done in the 80s and 90s by people like Arthur Ecker and David Deutsch at Oxford. And they kind of theorized about a quantum computer, but there wasn't actually built until much later and then there were people that built it so it's kind of this very very slow process in terms of your initial question about who the face of quantum is you're right there isn't really a kind of central face i guess maybe someone like john martinez at google whose lab was the ones that um achieved quantum supremacy in china um there's a guy called Jianwei pan who's considered the father of quantum um, i spoke to him for the book as well and he um he's maybe arguably the person that you would put the Known to if you were looking at a kind of global perspective, but obviously he is not as visible in the Western media. I mean, the, the most interesting thing to me still is about um, this, and you, you mentioned Feynman. Um, quantum, what it does is it it cracks the problems, the problems that are that are that are most dominant in the world today of the environment and of um, of the human body. Um, you say that quantum can quantum can simulate nature. Does that mean it can simulate the universe? Will this help in our obsession now with discovering other forms of life? We've had a couple of shows about the possibility or indeed the probability of uh, non-human species in, in outer space. I think you need to think of it, uh, it can help us understand the universe, but at a much smaller scale. So it's more like it can help us get towards the unified theory of everything, right, that, that combines Newtonian physics with quantum physics. It can help us, well, the hope is that it'll be able to help us unlock these secrets at a very, very small scale. Whether it will help us, you know, it could unlock technologies or it could help create technologies that will enable us to see further into the space or to travel further into space than we can do right now but i think you know we're looking at a very very small scale here and you know there are secrets of the universe to be unlocked at that scale as well as at the sort of gal galactic scale what are you most hopeful about i, I keep on mentioning global warming um uh, you uh, interview somebody else from google sergio buaxo who says climate change is an energy problem energy is a physical chemical process Maybe if we build the tools that allow the simulations to be done, we can construct a new industrial revolution that will hopefully be a more efficient use of energy. Still means we got to turn our TVs off and our refrigerators. I mean, it doesn't solve the core problems of energy, does it? It doesn't solve the core problems of energy in and of itself, but it could be a tool that we could use to get to an answer to these problems. Look, electrification is proceeding quite rapidly at this point and it needs to accelerate further and there are bottlenecks along the way one of them what we talked about is the lithium-ion bottleneck there will be there will be others 
And I think if quantum can give us a better ability to create new materials or to simulate chemical reactions, it can help us get through those bottlenecks quicker. It can bring in new technologies that are cleaner and that are just more advanced, right? You know, it, it, it's about speeding up that process of discovery. You know, eventually scientists will discover an alternative to lithium for batteries and we'll get better batteries. People are working on carbon-based supercapacitors, for instance. But that process will be so much quicker if we have the tools and the capability to simulate nature, as we talked about. I mean, uh, tomorrow I have uh, the American um, social scientist Jonathan Rausch on the show, just has a new book out about the death of truth. Uh, one of the most popular new technologies out here in Silicon Valley um, are, are technologies that invent the world in such a way as you can't distinguish truth from fiction. How does quantum play into that? Does it compound the fictionalization of the world or will it enable us to create some sort of matrix for distinguishing truth from lies? I think what it does, I mean, I, I hope that it will bring about a new way of thinking about the world, right? I think this whole truth or lie thing, you know, particularly in Silicon Valley, if you, if you're, if you work in computer science, you've kind of grown up in this environment where things are certain, right? Zeros and ones, you know, on and off, et cetera, et cetera. Quantum by its very nature is probabilistic. So it's uncertain. It's got uncertainty woven all the way through it. So I don't think quantum has much to say about truth, really, apart from the sort of fundamental truths of the universe or the, you know, the, the way things work. But maybe it will usher in a new way of thinking about the world in a more probabilistic manner, a more, um, which is, which is kind of alien to the way that humans perceive the world, but we're, we're really bad at like. So we're thinking, so, so what you're there. saying is that it will encourage us to think rather than in truth and fiction or truth and falsity in probability. Yeah. in chance, right. So like, you know, we're, we're really bad at assessing the probability of things happening to us. We massively overstate the probability of bad things happening to us, for instance, in certain situations, you know, how, how often do people worry about a plane crash versus, you know, how frequent plane crashes are, for instance. But maybe by adapting to this probabilistic way of computing, it will impact the way that we perceive the world and the way we think about the world and make us think about it more accurately, I guess. And can it enrich our life in that sense? If, if we wake up in the morning and say, shall I go for a walk? Shall I read a book? Shall I go back to sleep? Will it be technology? You know, the, 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 the traditional Google technology is it, it creates an algorithm of our previous experiences and habits and then just basically says, well, you should do what you've done before. Could quantum enable um, perhaps a, a, a smarter, more human AI thinking in probabilistic rather than historical terms? Potentially. I think, you know, this is a long, long way off. I think, and, and again, I think that, you know, the interactions that we'll have with these systems will be so remote that the, they might they may help to write an AI model that's much more flexible and fluid and is less focused or less reliant on previous behavior to, to specify future behavior. But, you know, that will be at a, a much, much higher level than your individual interaction with that system. So it's all about, you know, I think I say something in the book, like you won't have a quantum chip in your iPhone, right? You're not going to have an iPhone Q, but 
quantum technology might be used to make the battery in that phone. It might be used to make Siri in that phone better. It might be used when you open Google Maps on that phone. It might be used to give you a, a better route that takes into account traffic patterns and things like that. So it's, that doesn't it's that sound kind of very distance. revolutionary. That basically sounds like a smarter new app. Right, but that's just one. That's just one aspect of it, right? So, you know, these are these are revolutionary technologies, but they're revolutionary in the sense that they're not going to revolutionise your. You know, you're not going to be walking around, you know, seeing quantum computers everywhere, and you're not going to be like, I'm just going to open up my quantum computer and do some quantum work. It's more like they'll change the world in ways that are gradual but significant. You know, and it's it's more about the path that we'll be on with quantum computers versus without them. Without them, we'll continue where we are. Sleeping computers will get gradually better and better until we run into the limits of Moore's law, at which point there'll be kind of a plateau. But with quantum computers, that right. quantum does away with Moore's law. I mean, isn't that the most revolutionary thing? Is Moore's law eventually hits the wall of physics? Is you can't keep on splitting uh, the chip physically, uh, but 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 quantum does away with that. Yeah, so ironically, so the, the reason that Moore's law will stop is because of quantum mechanics, because eventually they'll get down to a scale where their transistors are made essentially of individual atoms. And then after that, there's nowhere else to go but into sort of the quantum realm. So quantum is both the the handbrake or the barrier to Moore's law and the solution to the problem that Moore's law stopping. Amit, finally, uh, let's imagine 2050. You look as if you'll probably be around then. I'm not sure if I will. <laughs> Uh, but it's long enough in the future that if you get this wrong, it doesn't really matter. G give me one prediction of, of the computer world, the quantum world of 2050, in which the world will be significantly different through quantum. Ooh, that's a big one. Um, I hope that it will have helped us unlock new materials and new drugs that we wouldn't have been able to unlock before. So maybe there'll be a drug for Alzheimer's that was designed and simulated in the quantum computer. Well, there already is an other drug for Alzheimer's. It just came out this week. It's expensive. A drug, a drug, for, Alzheimer's that, a drug for Alzheimer's that works, yeah. Uh, and it doesn't <laughs> cost $60,000 a pill. Yeah. Or, or it will be like tailored drugs, right? You know, that, I, think, I think in combination with these other technologies, it could have a really significant impact. Well, Amit, uh, thank you. Uh, your book, um, Quantum Computing, How It Works and Why It Could Change the World, is short, which is good, and it's accessible, which is good, and it's written very well by a journalist rather than a scientist, which is good. So anyone interested in quantum needs to pick it up. It's a wired book. It's a short read, uh, and you do justice to the book, I think, in terms of this interview uh, by trying to explain this stuff coherently in spite of my sometimes rather silly questions. Um, I know you're in London at the moment, Amit, uh, in these strange post-COVID days, maybe not quite post-COVID, where we're all still locked inside. In addition to your new book, Quantum Computing, what else should people be reading? So I've actually been reading a lot of historical books, weirdly, for another, another project I've been working on. I recently read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which is from 1906, uh, and it's about Chicago and the meatpacking industry in Chicago. And then I read a piece recently in The Atlantic about a meatpacking factory, um, I think in um, Kansas, and the similarities and how little that industry has changed and the sort of brutality of it is really, really fascinating. I think we're in a really unique moment in that because of these big tech companies and places like Amazon, labor conditions have almost regressed. And I think reading The Jungle really brought home to me how 
despite all the progress that labor movements have made over the last century, there's still this problem of, of workers being treated quite badly by these kind of giant conglomerates. And there's some really, really interesting parallels between the jungle from 1906 and, and today. Rami Katwala, uh, author of Quantum Computing, a uh, real honor. We'll have you back on the show in 2050 to see if your predictions <laughs> about quantum come true. In the meantime, keep well, keep safe, and we'll see you again very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.